Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation, indeed, of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So if I asked you to name the most famous British prime minister of the last century, my guess is that we get one of two answers, either Margaret Thatcher or Winston Churchill. I think you usually get that in Athens because he kind of looked like a bulldog. That's just my hunch. (laughs) But if you ask either of them who was the most famous British prime minister of the previous century, uh, they would have said William Gladstone. Uh, William Gladstone served four terms in the late 1800s. He was a dominant political figure of the Victorian era. And he's interesting. Before going into politics, Gladstone toyed with a call to ministry uh, in the Church of England, Anglican Church, and remained a noted, a devout Christian throughout his life and public service, his career. And there's a great story recounted of a conversation he had with a young man uh, who was working for him. Um, I think he was a clerk or an apprentice, some kind of a, I guess, 19th century internship. I don't know if he got paid or not, but anyways. The young man was talking to William Gladstone and telling him about his plans, his his five-year plan for life. And Gladstone said, well, tell me about it. What's your dream? What do you hope to accomplish? And the young man said, well, first law and then government. And he said it with uh, the enthusiasm, the optimism of youth. And Gladstone said, well, well, then what? He said, well, service to my nation. Well, then what? Well, perhaps fame and wealth, maybe uh, marriage and a family, maybe singleness. Then what? I don't know, like retire, live on what I've made? Well, then what? What? I guess I'll die. Then what? There was complete silence. The young man had no plan for what would happen when he died. And Gladstone said, young man, you had better go back and think life through. You better go back and think life through. Uh, Thinking through what will happen Uh, When we die, what we think our plan is, um, that can be manipulated, but it's a wise task to put life in perspective, to put things in perspective. And if we're confused about these matters, it's going to have confusion in all kinds of areas in our life. So I think that's a little bit of what's happening here in 1 Corinthians 15, Um, We're looking at our second of kind of three weeks in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. And this church, they are incredibly confused about what they think will even happen when they die. They're confused about what happened when Jesus died. And Paul wants them to know that if they're confused about those eternal and mysterious matters, well, then it's no wonder they're so confused on other things as well. And so in this chapter, he just wants to do some, some teaching. He wants to show them, just kind of reorient how they're thinking about things um, so that they will rightly do what we just confessed here, believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. So that's what I want to look at today, uh, this linchpin doctrine of the resurrection and what Paul is doing in this pretty intricate passage. Because the first thing he's doing 
as he sets up a connection, a claim. Um, it's kind of a, a hypothesis he proposes. Uh, he doesn't think this is true, but for sake of argument, he says, now if Christ is uh, proclaimed as raised from the dead, which is true, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Um, if you had asked them what they thought would happen when you died, uh, they didn't think there was necessarily life, eternal life, resurrection life in the world to come. And, and, he's, and, and he probably, if you ask them, well, what do you think about Jesus? Well, they would say, Jesus is special. Jesus is different. And Paul wants to tie it together. He says, whatever we think happened to Jesus when he died and then rose again, it is connected integrally to what we think will happen when we die and how we think about uh, not only life after death, but life in the age to come and the life of the world to come. He wants us to see these are connected, the resurrection of Jesus and our uh, future hope. Hey, he says, if you deny the broader category that there can be life after death, then you're denying the resurrection of Jesus. Just think about the catastrophic domino effects of that. It says if Christ has not been raised, then everything's vanity. Our preaching, our faith, all of it. Because if Jesus hasn't been raised, then he says you're still in your sins. If you're still in your sins, you're still in need of redemption. He says beyond that, if, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, but we said God did raise Jesus, then we are blasphemers. Because you've ascribed something to God that he didn't do. And that is dangerous, uh, shaky territory. Bishop N.T. Wright says, Paul's strongest argument here is that there's a link between the resurrection of Jesus and our future hope, but also a clear link between sin and death. Because if Jesus has been raised, then the power of death has been broken. And the final victory is assured. Says death, as always in biblical thought, is the result of sin. As humans turn away from the life-giving God and vainly attempt to find life elsewhere. Says, but if death has been defeated, then sin has been defeated as well. These are all tied together. Said if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then you're still in your sins. And I had this moment on a Friday. I want to tell you about this. It was an, it was a humorous moment. But we were at a clergy retreat uh, in Shaco Springs, Alabama. Um, if you ever get invited to a clergy retreat at Shaco Springs, Alabama, a pack a cooler and a pantry so that you can nourish yourself during the time away. <laughs> but we were gathered with a whole group of clergy from our diocese. We're part of a diocese. It's about 50 churches under our bishops. And uh, we were doing morning prayer on Friday, going through the daily office found in the Book of Common Prayer. And uh, we prayed this confession. We're going to pray it in a little bit. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And as we paused, I don't know if it was an iPad or a phone or a watch, but Siri heard us. And we hear, well, I'm sorry, please try again. <laughs> Well, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, that's all we have. Try again. Try harder. Do better. It's on us. We have to do it right. But if Jesus has been raised, then we have absolution and forgiveness. We have hope and salvation 
and redemption. What we need more than anything. Again, Paul's just playing this back and forth. If this is true or if it's not, let's just play out the implications. Let's see what comes, because uh, what we believe has consequences. And so verse 19, he kind of gives the ultimate version of this. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then the rug comes out from under all of it. Um, and I even think this is a little tricky for us to fully grasp what Paul is saying. Um, but Paul says the Christian faith involves uh, some things that are not pleasant. Um, Self-denial and suffering and persecution. Uh, in Corinth, here in the first century, being a Christian had no positive connotations. Like I remember growing up in the Atlanta area, like if you wanted to run for public office, you had to be part of some kind of church. Or folks just thought you were weird. Um, and I know that's changing. I think we're probably getting more into a Corinthian situation, but for them, it was the opposite. It, it meant social ostracization. It, it was cultural suicide. It was vocational. I mean, you were just shooting yourself in the, in the sandal, in the foot, to make your way forward in the world. You would be hated and reviled, persecuted. The things that we heard about from the Gospel of Luke. Coming to Christ made things harder in the first century. And so Paul says that if, man, if, if, if all this is a lot harder, and it is, but if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, oh my goodness. It's all the hardship with none of the payoff. And you can imagine, I think if we, let's say, you know, some definitive proof came that Jesus had not been raised from the dead, which won't happen, but let's say it did. I imagine the response would be shock and alarm. Um, I really like stand-up comedy. I think comedians would have a field day. Mocking and jeering, it'd be hilarious. Folks would be angry. I think those were probably mocking anger and humor. I told you so. But Paul says, no, we should pity, be pitied if that's true. Because, man, we just followed something and it wasn't, didn't hold water. Um, and I think we get that. I think if you see someone and, and they're deeply committed to something that, that you know to be false, um, the response is not to mock them or to get angry with them. Um, it's to, to have empathy and maybe to share and converse and, and think how you can pray for them. That, that shows us a way forward there. But Paul's saying, man, if the resurrection didn't happen, whoo, we are wasting our time. This is the linchpin of everything uh, for Paul. Um, when I talk to folks who are exploring the Christian faith or have doubts about the Christian faith, um, I'll just tell you, this is where I come, is let's talk about the resurrection. Because um, folks have good questions about lots of areas of the Christian faith, and those are questions. We need to have those conversations. There's answers as well to many of those questions. But this is where I think the buck stops, with the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, well, then all those other questions, they get answered and don't matter, Right? But if he was raised from the dead, then it either answers those other questions or it says, hey, even if there aren't answers, we know this to be true. And we can anchor our hope to it. We can tether ourselves to the resurrection of Jesus. And there's really good reasons to believe in the resurrection. Again, if you're wrestling with this, I would say, um, man, make a time for coffee, set up an appointment. We'd love to talk with you further.
about why, I, at least even I find the resurrection to be compelling and uh, why I can't get around it, can't get away from it. I think it's there. I think it's there from the scriptures. I also think really it's there from history. Um, because whether you think Jesus was raised from the dead or not, you have to somehow account for this worldwide movement starting in the first century. Um, and plausibility-wise, probably something happened <laughs> to kickstart that, right? If you see a ripple in a pond, you know some rock hit. So then let's talk about that rock. But okay, um, that's what Paul's doing with the first kind of half of our passage today. If the resurrection didn't happen, man, we are wasting our time. You're still in your sins. Your faith is futile. All we hear is Siri. Please try again to life. So then he turns. The whole next part, okay, well then, if that's what's the consequences of there being no resurrection, well, what if there is? If Jesus has been raised from the dead, which he's certain he has, then what does that mean? And how do we think about that? And in verses 20 through 28, and this is intricate. Actually, both of our lay readers, you could tell it was intricate. Um, but Paul in eight verses is going to summarize the entire Bible. So it should be intricate. He's going to summarize Genesis to Revelation. He's going to talk about the redemption and renewal of everything. And so to tell that story, uh, Paul comes in and he kind of hangs his thoughts on these hooks. His imagination is filled with the Old Testament, filled with creation. So he's like, okay, let's think about Adam. Let's think about Jesus. Often when Paul is trying to make sense of what God has done in Christ, that becomes his way of thinking, his logic. Um, that's natural uh, for Paul to think in these, in these ways. So verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 21, this is back in Genesis. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That's the connection he's making between creation and new creation. First Adam, second Adam, the Lord Jesus. Uh, this one who was made in the image of God and this one who was the very representation of God, the word made flesh. The one who was placed in paradise and said, don't eat of this. Stay away from this tree. And the one who came from paradise and went to a tree for us and for our salvation. One whose disobedience brought death for all. One whose obedience brought life for all. Paul loves this. Romans 5, that's, that's what Romans 5 is all about. This, this setup between how Jesus relates to Adam. And so Paul's leaning into this. He, he says, look at the big picture of what God has done in Jesus, how he has remedied and restored and is redeeming all things in Jesus. How the one man brought death and now the one man brings life and makes us alive. He tells them and they can be alive. But there's an order to it. It says, verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. We'll talk about that in a moment. But this idea of the first fruits, it's an odd phrase. We don't use it all the time, do we? But, but in some way, the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits of our own future glory. 
that they're connected somehow. Um, and, and I'll say this, actually, this, this idea of first fruits, um, I think it's a, it's a brilliant term. It's, it's full of hope and joy and excitement. Um, during the, the, the first few months of the pandemic, uh, back in 2020, um, we started a garden at our home. Um, and I had nothing to do with it. I'm very bad at such things. But my wife uh, is great at it. And so she was like, hey, we, first of all, we went to the grocery store. There was no food, so let's make some food. Um, and we've got time on our hands, and we've got, let's do a project. Let's get dirty, get muddy. Um, and I didn't know all that went into gardening until that experiment at our home. Um, and so there's a whole process where you get the seeds, and you, you, know, you get these little styrofoam cups, and you help. Our whole garage became overran with these little styrofoam cups, and we had lights, and I mean, it was a whole, it was a whole, we had a schedule. It's all very precise and organized. I had respect uh, for the process. Um, eventually, all right, something's happening, so it's time to put them on the ground. We've got the, the little box gardens ready. We put them in, and then you wait, right? All this work, and then you wait. And eventually, something just starts to sprout. Um, and this is the most fun when you do have little kids around. Um, and so, I mean, my daughter Zoe, she was, I guess, what, seven at the time. I mean, she's tracking it day by day. Let's see what's happening. Let's see what's next. Um, and we, we planted a lot of things. Holly did, but she planted uh, these little tomato plants. Um, and I just remember the first fruit. The first, I mean, like smaller than a cherry tomato. And she plucked it, Zoe did, and it got paraded on high through our entire house. It ended up on FaceTime. I think it popped up on Instagram. We celebrated that first fruit. Now, of course, by the end of the season, we were like, here's a plate of these tomatoes. I get, can we make marinara sauce again? Like, what do we do with all these? That's the idea, the joy of the first fruits. That's the resurrection of Jesus. There's been this long period of preparation and working, but look, the first fruit, and Paul wants them to know there's going to be more. There's going to be you, and you're going to be part of that great joy-filled harvest, the first fruits of the resurrection. He wants them to know where, if he's telling the whole story of Genesis to Revelation, he wants to give, drop a pen. Here's where you are in this story. Jesus has died and been he's raised to life according to the scriptures for your sins and your redemption. That's what the first part of this chapter was, right? The earliest creed of the early church. Here's the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he goes, and now you're waiting. And you're waiting for Christ to come again. You're waiting for the resurrection of the dead. You're waiting for this sequence each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom uh, to the Father. We're waiting to see the kingdom come in its fullness. We pray like the Lord told us in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see God's glory and righteousness and goodness and justice come in his fullness. When death is slaughtered, will be no more, and the life of the world to come arrives. Paul says that's what we're building towards. Uh, when it says that then comes the end, 
Um, that's a, man, there's a Greek word behind that. And I, I don't often like to do the here's the Greek homework kind of thing. But it's this Greek word telos. And when it says the end, I, you know, I, I think of it more like the finish line than a completion or a stop. Saying this is where it's all going. This is where it was heading towards. And it's going to usher in something even new. And something glorious. There's an end. Um, and I would say, I think that's really comforting. I don't know about you. Uh, to know that in the midst of, uh, of all that is wonky and weird and broken, that there's a, there's a goal, there's a telos, there's an end. That history is not random or chaotic, and the things that happen in our lives are not random or chaotic, even the, the things we wish wouldn't. But that there's ultimately an end, and that there's an ultimate purpose in the Lord. That something, somehow all things are working together for the good of those who love God. Not for their happiness, but for their ultimate good. There's a telos. We're being conformed to the image of Jesus, and through Jesus, God is restoring and redeeming everything. And that's when we hear, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's good news. It's really good news that the death that was introduced by Adam has now been conquered through the resurrection and that conquering uh, will be complete. There's been a great defeat and we're waiting to see its fullness. That's, what we're, that's a lot of what we're doing even right now. Um, and I think this is really key for us to get our heads around it even gets to verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, uh, then the son himself uh, also will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. Here's the goal. Look at verse 28, that God may be all in all, that his loving presence, his glory, his beauty will fill everything and renew and restore everything. Um, I don't know about you. I, I would say that when I think about um, what's to come in the Christian life, or if I go to the end time section in a Christian bookstore, um, usually to tell people, please just go pick up a Bible. <laughs> Don't read any of this. <laughs> um, man, the church has not done great in this area, have we? I mean, there's so much speculation and so much that's just weird. And I don't know if it's helpful. And I, I just, the thought I had looking at this passage this week was like, man, why do we take um, passages that are completely mysterious and unclear and overly explain them when we think about what's going to happen, whereas Paul in eight verses says, here's the plan. Like this should form the contours of what we think will happen. Christ will come again. The risen Christ will come again. Um, and then we'll see the life of the world to come. Like, that's certain. Like, that, that appears everywhere throughout the scriptures. And it's not that we try to figure out, like, a, you know, paint by number. This person's this, and ooh, let's get under this code. You know, the whole point of this is that God is all in all, which is incomprehensible how good that would be. Um, the great Old Testament prophet Habakkuk Chapter 2, verse 14. It says, The earth 
will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's what it means for God to be all in all. I always think about the life of the world to come, the new heavens, the new earth. Well, it's like a huge temple filled with the glorious presence of God. That's what we can place our hope in. That's what we can trust in. And we're waiting on it. And those who die in the Lord, well, they're with the Lord, but there's a sense in which they're waiting on this as well. And we've just kind of flattened that story out, but we need to grab the fullness. Um, and again, it's not something new. It's, it's in the creeds. <laughs> it's something that somehow we missed, that, that we got sidelined by speculation, and, and we flattened out this story. And I think our main call is to come back and just see the contours again. Um, if, if this intrigues you, again, if, if you're skeptical and you're exploring, I would say if the resurrection, you're like, I don't know about that, uh, please set up a time. We'd love to talk with you. But if you're like, man, I don't even know, like you're talking about this life of the world to come and new heavens, new earth. I don't know about that stuff. I'm good on the resurrection of Jesus, but this doesn't match what I've heard. Um, I would just encourage you to pick up a book called Surprised by Hope. It's by N.T. Wright. One of the reasons I quote N.T. Wright all the time is so that if you end up in a bookstore, you'll go, oh, that's the person Father Daniel always talks about. Let me read this book versus something else that's maybe on the shelf. And especially if we're talking about in times kind of thought, please pick up Surprised by Hope, not the other things on the shelf. Or read Paul. Just read 1 Corinthians 15 over and over. I use this app called Dwell. It's an audio Bible. And I can just put 1 Corinthians 15 on. It just cycles. It even has cool accents. Like they have different people reading. And so it doesn't, it doesn't hit your ear the same way each time. You can just sit with it um, and see what God reveals to you as you prayerfully go over it over and over. Bishop N.T. Wright says that when Jesus comes back, he's going to come back to heal and to transform and to reign in a world flooded with justice and peace and love with God's very own presence, such that God is all in all. So what do we do with it? something like this? One, I think it's helpful to clarify our thinking. If we've not thought about it, then with wisdom, we clarify our thinking on it. Um, but it's not purely intellectual. It's not just rational. Because Paul tells us elsewhere um, that you have a way actually to grasp this. Um, of the resurrection, he uses this image of first fruits and harvest, or sometimes a foretaste or appetizer and the feast is to come. Um, in Ephesians, he makes it a little more personal, and he actually uses kind of a financial idea. And he says, you actually have a down payment on all this. You have a down payment on all this that will eventually come due and be paid in full. And that down payment, he says, is the Holy Spirit. that we know that this is certain and coming both from the resurrection of Jesus and the life of the Spirit in our midst today and the reality and work of the Spirit in our lives today, that the Spirit has been poured out as a down payment of all that is to come. And so I would say, if you're like, man, I, I get this even rationally, like I love it, I know it. Are you open to the work of the Holy Spirit in this way? Um, do you realize that the Holy Spirit is poured into our midst not just for you know, fun tricks, 
uh, poor, I made poor Deacon Joe and Father Bill preach on the spiritual gifts. Um, no, it's actually part of what it's supposed to do is to tether our hope to this great truth. Especially when things seem random and chaotic and dark and frustrating and futile, the Holy Spirit says there's a telos, there's an end, there's a goal. God will be all in all. In the face of death, there's the life of the world to come because Jesus has conquered death. And in the face of your sins, you can be forgiven. And so we place our faith in this gospel. We place our hope in this gospel. We share it with those who need to hear it. We seek to go, what would that even mean to start living out the values of the life of the world to come here and now? Uh, Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite pastors, calls this practicing resurrection. <laughs> that in some ways we practice living for the life of the world to come. And we read things like the, the Sermon on the Mount or here in Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, um, which confuses some people. I think that's just your angle. Where Jesus delivered this sermon is kind of a flat hill. <laughs> so if you're looking up, yeah, it's a mount. If you're up there, yeah, it's the plain. But you actually start to live life in light of these values of the kingdom because the kingdom's coming and you're practicing resurrection. Even if they seem like they're counterintuitive or countercultural now, Paul said, exactly. Because they're the script of the life of the world to come. So let's practice and live into that even today. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.